And all the congregation lifted their voice and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in Egypt? Or would God that we had died in this wilderness? Let's begin this morning with a word of prayer. Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt. A cry went up from the children of Israel as they stood at Kadesh Barnea on the verge of entering the promised land. Have you ever felt like that? Now, I realize that we're not supposed to, to let on like we got problems. And we come to church with our, sometimes our plastic smile. That's not always the case, but I've had it on every so often. I'm sure some of you do too. We come to church with sort of that mechanical enthusiasm that we drum up. It's not really spirit-oriented or spirit-inspired. This morning, I'd just sort of like to be honest with you. I don't have some kind of an elaborate introduction or any kind of an elaborate message But recently, I've felt pretty low, pretty discouraged, pretty disheartened. You feel like you're in a pit, or at least this is the way I feel like you're in a pit, and you're just doing all you can to keep the walls from caving in. And you're pushing as hard as you can. And you're saying to yourself, would God that I had died in the land of Egypt? How did I ever get into this? Lately, I feel that I look at my heart, I see that it's grown cold somewhat, maybe lack of vision. Sometimes I see that I major on the minors and minor on the majors. Anyone ever have that problem? One person said to me once, he said, uh, I don't know why you preach about that your preaching always centers around problems. You're the one that has the problems. We don't. Now, (laughs) that really alarmed me. Someone from in the church, by the way, didn't care for my preaching. Still doesn't. You know, you really feel this when you preach. Because I know the key to successful preaching is not my previous study. It's not my ability to, to deliver a message with dynamic. It's not the polish or the, or the, the uh, rhetoric that goes into a message. What really makes a message effective, and you know very well as I do, no matter how sloppy I be, I mean, I should be try to do the very best I can, but what really makes it effective is the fact that God has prepared the heart. My heart to preach it and your heart to receive it. Now, if there's a breakdown in either place, the message is lost. I mean, to go out and just preach the message to a congregation where the heart has not been received, and I've had that experience before, not here, but somewhere else, I couldn't believe it. The message went zero. It was one that I knew well. It was all ready. And you could just sense the, the congregation could care less. An evangelical congregation. Boy, I fell flat that day. 
And there have been days that I've fallen flat in the pulpit here because that heart has not been prepared by God. And I know that it's got to be a heart that's prepared. You know, one of the pits or traps that I get into as a pastor, and you don't always help me a lot, is on Sunday morning, you know, and I've delivered a message and I've put my whole heart into it and it's touched a lot of lives, people will come out and they'll say, that's the best one yet. And you know what that means? That means that the others weren't quite as good and next week's got to be better. And so each week you go back and you think, how can I top that one, you know? It's a riot. When in actuality, what God wants to do is, Arch, just calm down. Just let me work on your heart and let me give you the message that I want to give you for that week. Now, maybe that won't be the most dynamic message you've ever preached. Maybe you might be a little sloppy that Sunday in your delivery. But it's the message that I want conveyed. And I have to keep coming back to that. And I suppose if there's one thing that, that gets me frustrated, it's, it's preaching. It's preparing for it. It's, it's the work. I just talked to a pastor not too long ago that I, that I was instrumental in encouraging going to the ministry. He's in New Jersey. And he's totally frustrated. This guy's a genius. He graduated with honors from Dallas Seminary. A bright person. But he's frustrated because of the burden that it puts upon his heart. And he knows very well to step into the pulpit and proclaim something that's not from the heart, just isn't what God wants. And we could turn the, the church into a classroom, and we could just teach, but to share something that's from the heart, that takes more than just study. I can study, 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 but God has to prepare the heart. And I guess that's one of the reasons you get to feeling a little low, a little discouraged, a little bit like life's caving in. You just want to get out from underneath that pressure every so often. Well, I feel that when we begin to lose confidence, when we begin to lose our, our vision, our imagination of what God can do through us, when we begin to feel, fail to see that, that God is lighting up our life and our whole existence, then I think we become like the children of Israel and we want to cry out, we want to say, God, would I have died in the land of Egypt? The ironic thing is, is that when the children of Israel stood on the verge of going into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea, they were at a point in their journey with God where they were about to enter the very best time of their life. They were going to see God's hand perform one victory after another. Victory after victory after victory after victory. They would see that. They would have seen it just like the children of Israel saw it 40 years later under Joshua. That generation could have seen the very same thing. Furthermore, they could have gone into a land instead of stumbling along in the rocks in the middle of a wilderness for 40 years, they could have gone into a land that was flowing with milk and honey, that was green and rich in pasture and forest. It was a time in their lives when they would have known joy and security and peace and happiness unlike they'd never known before. But because they lost confidence, because they lost their vision, 
Because they lost their enthusiasm and the fact that God was not lighting up their light, their life like He was, they threw away that opportunity. They threw away that opportunity. And for 40 years, they stumbled through the wilderness. And eventually, all of that generation died in the wilderness. You know, it's that loss of confidence. It's that lack of vision which turns even the most dynamic spiritual Christian, vibrant, enthusiastic believer in Christ. It's that loss that turns that man or that woman into a defeated, wandering nomad. And there's one thing that I fear in my life is I don't want to end up a wandering nomad. I want to be a victorious, vibrant, exciting Christian and pastor. And the question we have to confront today is how many of us are on the verge of becoming wandering nomads because we've lost our vision, we've lost our confidence, we've lost the, the zeal that God has given to us. Well, I don't want to lose it. And so I'm going back to a scripture that has helped me a great deal in my life. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 1. And if you don't have this problem, just tune out. I do. And I'm going to preach to myself this morning. And if there's nobody else here that profits, at least I will. Beginning in verse 15. The Apostle Paul begins to pray. And he says, Wherefore I also, after I had heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and the love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding power of His greatness to usward who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The apostle, when he wrote this book to the church at Ephesus, was very, very concerned that they walk into the promised land. They, like their forebears, were on the verge of turning back. He wanted them to move ahead, to go into that land where they would experience victory after victory after victory, where they would be able to know the prosperity of a land full of milk and honey. The apostle was burdened that they experience this, but he knew that the trials as they continued to walk into that land, that the trials, the frustrations, the challenges, the demands that would be placed upon them would sometimes 
make it seem like they wish they were dead or like they wanted to turn back. Now, it's interesting how the apostle begins. Many people say that doctrine is not very important. We ought to get into the practical part of Christian life. Well, if that was the case, then why is it that in most of the epistles that the apostle writes, he always begins with the doctrine before he begets to the practical? And in Ephesians chapter 1, in that one sentence that we read earlier, we, we hear about the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of forgiveness, the doctrine of sealing. Now, if those doctrines are immaterial to Christian living, then why would he tell them about these things, knowing that what they needed was to be encouraged to go into the promised land, to enter God's place for them in their Christian walk and their Christian life? The simple reason is, is that all action begins with a philosophy grounded in some kind of truth. Every one of us, the reason we do the things we do is because we perceive and understand the world in a certain way. And so what Scripture is attempting to do for us is to change our worldview, to change our perspective, to change us in such a way so that we see things as God sees them. That's wisdom. That's revelation that we'll read about in a minute. But once we have that doctrine and once it's entered our minds and once we're able to see as God sees, there's one more problem. And it's a problem that cannot be dealt with through teaching. It's not a problem that can be dealt with through study. It's a problem that can only be dealt with through prayer and through the gracious work of God in a life. And this is the problem. The problem is, is that doctrine and truth is impersonal. And it needs, in order to change a life, it needs to become personal truth. In other words, as we read that sentence just a moment ago, how many of us this morning thought about that sentence and said, that's my truth. That's the story of my life. That's affected me personally. Or how many of us thought of that, well, I've heard that before. And it zips through our mind as a fact to be believed but not appropriated into the heart. And see, that was the problem the apostle was facing. Here he had just shared one of the, the most beautiful sentences of all Scripture with these people, these Christian people. But the one thing he was fearful of is that that sentence full of truth might just pass by them and never get down into the depths of their heart that their whole behavior, their whole life might be influenced and affected. The apostle wanted truth to become not just truth for the sake of truth, but for truth to become personal truth, a foundation on which we build our own personal lives, to become our own personal worldview, our own personal philosophy, our own personal way of looking at things. And so he prays. And he prays in verse 17 that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Those are two synonyms. Basically, He may give you the ability to see things as He sees them in the full knowledge or the thorough knowledge of Him. In other words, as you search out the Scriptures, as you search out the Scriptures and begin to know God and experience God or think of God and see things as God sees them, He wants us to be able to see everything as God perceives or God, God sees. But then he adds this, verse 18, 
the eyes of your understanding. Now, the word understanding is not a good translation in the King James. Because the word in the original language is the word for heart, cardia, where we get our word cardiac. It's the word cardia, and it's referring to heart. And he's saying, is the eyes of your heart being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power. Before we can go any further in Paul's prayer, he is saying basically, not that they just might see things as God sees them, but they also might get down into the heart. And they might begin to perceive and see from the heart, not just from the head. That is most important to the Apostle Paul, and there's only one thing that can happen, one thing that can make that happen, and that is as if God works in that heart, in my heart and in your heart, to enable us to see things like that. There are three things, three great truths that he wants them to grasp, not with their head, but with their heart. The first is stated in verse 18, that you may know the hope of his calling. The hope of his calling. The word calling in Scripture is an interesting study in and of itself. And it's used quite frequently. And in most cases, the word calling is associated with God's calling of His people to all the blessings that He has for them. Calling us into into His relationship with Him. I think one passage where this verse, this word really stands out is Romans chapter 8. And I want you to turn to that passage with me this morning. And even though you know it by heart, I think I want to just call a couple things to our attention today. As we look at this passage, we all know so well. Prone to quote it, but do we feel it? Notice what he says. Verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. All things work together for good to them that love God. What is he saying there? He's talking about the present. All things in the present will eventually work for future good. So he's looking at the present and he's saying, as we look at the present, we can see that the outcome, the eventual result of these things, which may be troubles and trials and persecution and sufferings and whatever, will eventually work out for good. Even things that we do ourselves through sin that brings hurt to our life, God is able to even turn our sinful things into good purposes. But notice he qualifies it and he says in the last part of the verse, specifically to them who are called according to his purpose. Here's the word called. We have a promise that all things work together for good, but it's a promise that is to the called, the called of God, those who are called according to his purpose, which takes us back to the past. So you've got the purpose of God the present circumstances, and the future good. Now, is he really able to back that up? He does in verse 29. He explains why this is so. For whom God did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, it doesn't just stop there. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And those he justified, them he also glorified. You see the progress? 
What the Apostle is saying is that this is all part of a progression, beginning with the foreknowledge of God. And please understand that foreknowledge is not equivalent to foresight. Foreknowledge is a word in Scripture that brings together the whole idea of God's intimate involvement with His people. And he's saying that it begins with God's intimate involvement, His intimate love for His people. Moving from that to predestination, His willful determination to save them, and then the fact that He calls them, and after He's called them by the Spirit of God bringing them to Christ, He justifies them, and after He justifies them, eventually He will glorify them. That's the whole process. From an intimate involvement in the heart and mind of God to the process where we're glorified together with Christ. That's the calling. That's the whole thing together. And when you're called of God, you're part of that process. And that's what he's trying to bring home. God isn't through with me yet. Now, Arch, you may be thinking that your life is a disaster or that you've got problems and that they're overwhelming you. God's just saying, Arch, God's not through. This is just part of the process and look at where we're going in the process. We're going to be glorified with Christ. It began way back in eternity past with the eternal purpose of God. An intimacy. Before I ever was created, God knew me and was intimately involved with my very being. But it's going to end in being glorified with Christ. What's the outcome of that? Verse 31 and 32. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not freely give us all things? Now, there's probably very few people in this church this morning that could not have quoted Romans 8.28. Very, very few people probably are here this morning that have never heard Romans 8.28-32. to we're all familiar with it. But you see, let's go back to Ephesians 1. The Apostle, Paul is saying, he's praying that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened, that you might know what is the hope of your calling. You see, he doesn't want this just to be a fact that we write down in our notebook. I'm not preaching to fill notebooks, and I don't think God is writing His Word to fill a notebook. God has written His Word, and He wants those who proclaim His Word to preach the Word of God that hearts might be changed and attitudes might be altered. And so what he's asking us is the hope of our calling, the Romans 8.28-32 teaching or doctrine of Scripture. He wants that to become something that gets way down deep in our heart so that we begin to say, God is moving me, me as an individual, to that ultimate place where I will be glorified with Christ. Ephesians 2.10 brings this out where he says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. Philippians chapter 1 where it says that He began a good work in us, will be faithful to perform it unto that day. All of those Scriptures are designed to teach the same thing, the hope of our calling. We haven't just been called to an idle existence. We have been called to a future glorified state with Christ. And that should give purpose and security to our life. How many of us have wondered, am I barking up the wrong tree? Am I doing the wrong thing? Is God really at work in my life? How many times have we questioned whether something really is the will of God or not the will of God? And we must come back to the thought and be secure in the thought 
deep down in our heart that God and His sovereignty is as a work as in our life today as He was 20 years ago. And believe me, there's no Christian who is a true believer that God is not at work in their life. And if they continue to resist and refuse and resist and refuse, eventually God in His grace will even take that Christian home physically to spare His own misery and the misery of the church. But I believe God is at work in the life of the Christian. And He's bringing us to that conclusion. Why can I say that? Because I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. I began in the foreknowledge of God and I'm ending with the glory of God. I once knew a girl that was adopted or not adopted. She lived in foster homes. And she was the most insecure girl that I'd ever met. Woman. Very, very insecure and unstable in her life. Difficult to make any kind of decision. Why? She didn't know where she came from and she wasn't sure where she was going. That was the reason for her instability. The reason for our stability as Christians is that deep down in our heart we realize where we came from and we know where we're going. Something the world hungers after. Something that we as Christians should definitely and vitally know. There's a second thing that the Apostle wants us to know. In verse 17 or verse 18 of Ephesians chapter 1, he says, And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The word inheritance, his inheritance, I think is clearly in the Apostle Paul's writings, a reference to eternal life that John would speak of as eternal life. In fact, many times we have people coming to Christ and saying, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life was equivalent to the inheritance of God. In First Peter, let me just share this passage with you. You're all familiar with it, but I think it's important to go over it again. It says that, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again to a lively hope through the resurrection of the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. I think the inheritance here spoken of is eternal life, the eternal destiny of the Christian. And I like the two, the two qualifications he puts before it when he says, the riches of the glory. The riches of the glory of this inheritance or his inheritance. The word riches is the idea of abundance, just overflowing. And the word glory has to do with the worth and honor, the value of it. And what he's saying is that the riches of the value or the worth of this eternal destiny that God has for us, this is ours. And he says that I'm praying for you. I'm praying that you might not just know it theologically, but that it deep down in your heart it might get way down deep in the persons in your heart that, in you, that you might truly begin to appreciate all that God has for you as a Christian. The inheritance that awaits you the eternal life that is yours in Christ. Little Amy is very good right now at pulling all my books off my shelf, pulling the papers off my desk and sprinkling them all over the room. She just gets the greatest charge out of taking things and making a mess out of them. And we love her. We even love her when she does that. Never thought I would. If you asked me that before being a parent, but after you become a parent, I guess that you begin to love those things. I do anyhow. But as I thought about it, and I looked around and I see, Arch, there's one thing in your life that you really like, and that's order. I mean, there's a lot of things that I like, but one thing I like is order and organization. I hate messiness. 
and sloppy lives. I like everything to have its place and I like things orderly. Now, true, my concept of orderliness might be different from my wife's or, or someone else's. And we all have our concept of orderliness, but it's true that we all like order. One of the things that I think will be significant about eternal life is that it will be a life of order. Because eternal life, by very definition, is a life that is like water springing up within us, a well of water unto eternal life. It satisfies. It satisfies every need. And when God creates a human being, a person, and that person will go on into eternity, God is saying that for all eternity, your every need will be satisfied. There is going to be order because you want order. There's going to be beauty because you want beauty. There's going to be peace because you want peace. There's going to be direction and purpose because you want direction and purpose. Our whole life in eternity is going to be filled with those things that will meet our deepest needs. And the Apostle is saying, that is what's awaiting you. Furthermore, what is awaiting you in eternity is the sense of worth that is going to come to those who have served Christ effectively and fervently with their life. This is brought out by the crowns that we've already looked at and we'll look at again. The crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crown of joy, the crown of rejoicing. All of these crowns that we have or have the opportunity to gain are part of the eternal existence of being able to walk into the presence of God and being extolled or honored by God Himself for a life that had been well lived for Christ. This is something that the Apostle says, I want you, deep down in your heart, to lay a hold of this hope. I want you to realize that what is awaiting you, not just in your head, but in your heart, to think about it, to be motivated by it. You see, the one thing we need to begin with is security in this life. I think the next thing we need is motivation. We need to realize that there's something to be gained by hanging in there. I can recall when I went into seminary and I said to Dr. Walvert after about two weeks, I said, I'm going to have to leave. This is too much. And he said, if you'll hang in here for four years and not give up and not quit, I'll guarantee that it'll change your life and you'll be thankful you hang in. You hung in there. And he was right. Now, had I bailed out after two weeks after a little hardship, I'd have missed the greatest joy in my life. The greatest blessing in my life since I became a Christian. The depths of putting down my roots into the Word of God. But hanging in there. And what the Apostle is saying is if we'll hang in there, if we'll keep after it, if we'll take that step from Kadesh Barnea into the Promised Land, what awaits us is so worthwhile. So beautiful and so wonderful it's beyond our wildest expectation. Now perhaps all of this has been some review the fact of our hope of our calling, the riches of the glory of His inheritance. We've covered these things many times. There's just one thing that remains. Although I may be secure where I'm at, and I might be motivated toward a goal to keep plugging away, I guess there's just one question I've got. Can I do it? Am I up to the task? Am I able? And that was the problem that defeated the children of Israel. You see... I think they were somewhat motivated. They wanted to get out of that wilderness. I believe they were secure. They'd seen the hand of God. And they knew that He was taking them. He promised He was taking them to an ultimate course. But you see, they looked ahead and they saw the giants, Ai. And they saw the problems of the walls of Jericho. 
And they saw that the land was full of large civilizations with great armies compared to their own. And they thought, can we ever do it? Can we conquer? Can we win? Can we make it? And it's that way in the Christian life. God, can I possibly overcome this sin? God, is there any way that I can actually make it? If God would have showed me when I began my Christian experience what I would be doing today, I would have passed out. I couldn't have told you about my dog in public, let alone preach a sermon. If God would have told me that I would have been a preacher, He would have had to carry me out off the stage, struck with heart failure. There's no possible way I could have endured that. But are we able? We don't know what God has ahead of us, but are we able? One of the things that defeats the Christian most effectively is the fact that we feel like we just don't have it. We aren't able. Let's take a look at verse 19. One more thing the Apostle prays that might get down in our heart. And he says, What is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power? According to the working of His mighty power. Do you see what's being discussed now? The power of God. The power of God. What is this power of God? Well, in the Old Testament, they always had a standard of the power of God, and that was the crossing of the Red Sea. If God was able to bring the children of Israel, part the waters of the Red Sea, bring the children of Israel through on dry land, and then lead the Pharaoh's army in, and then close the waters over the army of Pharaoh and completely destroy the military might of Egypt. If God was able to do that, He can do anything. And that was the source or standard of God's power in the Old Testament. That was to be the standard of power that motivated the children of Israel to go into the Promised Land and say, we can lick Ai, we can lick Jericho, we can lick all the communities and civilizations of this land because our God is with us and He licked the Egyptians, which was the strongest nation at that time. Well, that's to be... There's also to be a standard of power for the, for the Christian. And he brings out that standard in verses 20 and 21 when it says, the power which wrought in Christ when it raised Him from the dead and set Him at His own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but in the world to come, and put all things under His feet and gave to Him to be head over all things for the church. The standard of power for the Christian is the resurrection from Christ. It's the resurrection of Christ and then the bringing of Him into heaven. It didn't just begin with raising Him from the dead, but of actually taking Him from this world and placing Him in heaven at the right hand of the Father where every rule and authority and power is under His authority. That's the standard of power for the Christian. And what he's saying is is that that power is sufficient for anything today. If God can do that for Christ, and that power then is able to do it, accomplish anything in the life of the believer. And he brings out that personal side of it when he says back in verse 19, what is the exceeding power or greatness of his power to usward? To usward. The idea there is it's a personal power, a power that is available to the Christian, a power that is able to transform the whole way the Christian looks at life 
and looks at his potential as a believer in Christ. He gave him this authority for the church, the last part of verse 22. The reason he gave it for the church is that he might have power over all these things. And that believers, because they stand related to Jesus Christ, because they are his children, the children of God, and the co-workers and co-laborers with Jesus Christ, part of his body, they too have the same power available to him, the same authority. And therefore, there's no, no challenge in this life, no problem that we face that we cannot meet. Because the power that brought Christ out of the grave and brought Him into the very presence of God is the same power that is able to help us overcome every problem, every challenge, every difficulty that we face in life. When it says that He gave Him to be head over all things for the church. I think there's a neat thing there. Can you imagine the kind of power that we would have if we knew the President of the United States? If you knew the President of the United States and were on personal terms with him, that might give you some real clout in terms of being able to get things done in this nation. You know, we know, not the President of the United States, we know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We know the One who has all power over all things. We know Him intimately. And that gives us real clout in being able to defeat the foe who would challenge and threaten to destroy us. It gives us real clout in being able to overcome the problems we face in life and the challenges that continually would bring us down. This is the hope that's ours as Christians, as believers in Christ. There's three things that make us feel like we're in that pit and like we're trying to push as hard as we can to keep life from caving in around us. One is insecurity. Two is the fact that we lack motivation. And three is the fact that we feel unable. Insecure or uncertain, unmotivated, and unable. We need to take the un out of each one of those. And we need to realize that in Jesus Christ, and we need to realize it's not in our head, but in our heart, that in Christ we are certain, we are motivated, and we are able. That's our hope as believers. And when that gets into the heart, there's no way we can stay in the pit. There's no way we can stay blue and gloomy and low because that just lifts us right out. Boy, that's been an encouragement to my heart. It really has. I'm not putting you on. This has been an encouragement to my life. I love this passage of Scripture because it, it just does something for my heart. It makes me see that my problems are so minuscule compared to what I have going for me in Christ. I should never fret. I should never feel low. God help me never to say, would that I had died in the land of Egypt. Shall we pray? Our gracious God and Father, speak to our hearts today and help us to realize the wonderful potential we have in Jesus Christ. Help us to know the, the glories of our creation 
in him but good works which he has ordained that we walk in them help him to help us to know Lord that he's not finished with us he's changing us and making us like himself that he might present us gloriously in eternity help us to realize the riches of our inheritance the eternal life that waits us in heaven the crowns that will be placed upon our head as a result of spending our life for Christ the Lord help us also to know that we need not be fearful of the powers that are around us for Lord we know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he has available to him a power that is over every other power a power that's available for us oh God help us today we pray for those who have not known the joy of this kind of relationship with God they might know that this relationship is available to them through faith in Christ for it's in his name we ask it amen